Last episode, we explored the story of the childhood and early career of Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. We talked about how a sports scholarship enabled him out of federally subsidized projects and into the University of Michigan. He found a job at Xerox after that and honed his skills. While working at his next company, Hammerplast, he discovered an interesting retailer. A retailer who was selling huge quantities of drip coffee makers. His curiosity took him to Seattle where the retailer was based. That retailer was Starbucks and Howard Schultz was deeply taken by the origins of it and the passion with which the co-founders founded it. This is the earlier Starbucks and not the next iteration which we all know of. That story continues today. Howard Schultz was working behind the counter at a Starbucks location. Someone yelled. They saw a man pick two expensive coffee makers and just walk out the door. Howard Schultz made a dash for it. He ran after the man. The man had gotten a little ahead and was walking away quickly. Schultz ran after him and yelled out, "Drop the stuff!" The man got spooked and dropped them. As the man got away, Schultz picked up the coffee makers and returned to the store. Everyone at the store applauded. What was Howard Schultz doing, working a behind-the-counter job at Starbucks? Welcome to Talking of Giants, a podcast that explores the stories of giants of various fields. Today, we continue the story of the origins of Starbucks. Howard Schultz was very moved by the organization Jerry Baldwin and Gordon Boker had built. He kept in touch with them even after he went back to New York. Over the course of the next year, he visited Seattle many times. At one dinner, he brought up the possibility to Baldwin. He wanted to know if there was any way he could be a part of Starbucks. He suggested he could improve the marketing and help open new locations. He also suggested that he might want to take a small stake in the enterprise. Baldwin seemed open to the suggestion. After a year of these talks, Schultz made a proper request. Baldwin at the time was also looking to hire someone with experience to make the company larger. Jerry Baldwin got together with Gordon Boker and another silent partner, Steve Donovan. He arranged a meeting with them and Howard Schultz. Howard Schultz explained all the things Starbucks could potentially be. He outlined to the trio his ideas. The trio listened and seemed very happy with Schultz's understanding of the business and his ideas. They agreed to call him the next morning and let him know of their decision. Baldwin called Schultz the next morning to tell him the decision. Their clear answer was no. Schultz was very shocked after the call. He had put a lot of heart into the idea and really saw this move as the next big step in his life. But given the salesman that he was, he called Baldwin back. He asked what the exact problem was. Baldwin relented and told him. Schultz, Baldwin said, was too ambitious. At Starbucks, they were running the kind of business they wanted. All the stores were making good money. Taking Schultz in would mean shaking the company at the core. 
Why fix something that was not broken was their thought. But Schultz was not ready to give in. He made an impassioned pitch to Baldwin. He told him that he knew that Baldwin understood what this was about. This was about how many more people Starbucks could reach with more effort. He explained to him that it was about the heart of the company and about touching more people. After asking for a day's time and calling him back the next, the trio of Starbucks owners gave in. You have the job, Baldwin told Schultz. Taking up the job meant taking a pay cut for Schultz. It also meant leaving New York, the city he grew up in. But once Schultz got to Seattle, he got to work. He worked in different positions in the Starbucks shops. Starbucks at the time was still only selling coffee beans. Schultz worked behind the counter and at the roastery. It was during one of those days that the incident with the thief happened. Schultz learned how to distinguish between different roasts and was taught the basics of the processes. This was the final rite of passage before he got down to do his actual job of marketing and improving Starbucks. As a part of his job, he once went to an international housewares exhibition in Milan because Starbucks also sold merchandise. Schultz was walking to the event when he saw an espresso bar. Being in the business of coffee and being a lover of coffee, Schultz walked in. It was like getting a glimpse of Disneyland. The man behind the machine, the barista, was working his magic. He was at once pulling shots of espresso, making coffee and chatting with the customers. All at the same time. People were standing at his counter, elbow to elbow, and watched the barista work his magic. Schultz went to the counter and got himself an espresso. The flavor took him immediately. He walked out and went to a different espresso bar. He mimicked the man who ordered a cafe latte and got himself one. The drink was made with a shot of espresso and steamed milk. This was a process that made the milk sweeter by steaming it and not adding sugar. Schultz loved what he found. He walked out further and realized these were everywhere, the espresso bars. The morning rush of men subsided after a while and then in the afternoon, women who were done with their household chores would come in and linger at the bars as would older people. Some cafes even put out tables for the afternoon customers when the pace was leisurely. Schultz realized this was it. This was the missing ingredient. The Italian romance of coffee was not just in the beans. It was in the experience. The Italians revered the art of making the espresso and made it a whole experience. The espresso bars were not just a place to get a drink. They were an extension of the front porch of a house. A place for people to gather in a relaxed and friendly setting. Later, many years later, Schultz would find the right word he was looking to describe this phenomenon. Based on Ray Oldenburg's book, The Great Good Place. In the book, 
Oldenburg talks about places like London's pubs and Germany's beer gardens that are an important part of public life and help people experience leisure as opposed to just work or family time. This, this place could be anything from bars to malls. Based on this idea, Starbucks would become the third place, a place between office and home. But before that dream was realized, there was a mountain to climb. Because what neither Schultz nor us should forget, Schultz at this time was a mere employee. He had a boss who had to approve of any big decision. Schultz finished his trip and returned to Seattle with his head burning with the weight of this idea. He had a boss to convince now. No, absolutely not. Jerry Baldwin was completely averse to the idea of Starbucks selling coffee. We are in the coffee business, not the beverage business, he told Schultz. Schultz argued that by selling coffee, they could get more people to try it and help them experience it the way it is supposed to be experienced. While Baldwin had valid reasons to reject the idea, there was something else that was going on that made the founders cautious about making any big steps. Something quite big for Baldwin and Boker, who started off as students inspired by Alfred Pete. Starbucks purchased Pete's coffee. Yes, that Pete's. The coffee store that introduced them to dark roasted coffee was being sold and the Starbucks founders jumped on the opportunity. They found that California could be a great place to expand. Though Pete's was not much bigger than Starbucks, Baldwin and Boker still considered Pete's as the holy grail and treated it with much reverence. This move put Starbucks deeply in debt. And taking up a project as ambitious as what Schultz suggested did not seem a good idea. But after a lot of pleading and convincing, Schultz got his permission at a huge concession. But when a new Starbucks store opened, he was given 300 square feet of space. It was less than half of the 750 square feet he asked, but he was willing to work with it. On the day the shop was set to open, Schultz came early and set up his counter. The man behind the traditional bean selling counter of Starbucks was checking his equipment. On the Schultz side were two baristas practicing their newly honed skills. They were Schultz's army in this fight for the heart of the company. But the space was all that Schultz could afford to get. There was no marketing and there was not even a sign outside to announce that there were espressos being sold. Slowly, the early morning crowd started trickling in. They wandered in and asked about the drinks being served. Some of them tried the espresso. Schultz saw them go through a similar cycle of expressions as he had gone through when he first tasted a cup made from Starbucks beans. They opened their eyes wide at the sudden burst of flavor and then enjoyed the rest of the cup. The baristas suggested the cafe latte to customers and people loved it. 
The day closed with a greater footfall than average for a Starbucks store. Day one was a grand success. Success for the counter, it turned out, would not stop. The shop kept improving sales as the days went on and a significant part of that improvement came from the drinks that were sold. The shop made a lot of money and the financial and business success of the idea was undeniable. Schultz went back to Baldwin now, again with the reports. He would try to convince Baldwin to improve upon the idea and expand the service to other Starbucks locations. But Baldwin would not budge. He had two important arguments. One, serving a drink would make them just another restaurant or coffee shop serving drinks. They would lose their speciality and their dedication to the coffee beans. Two, even if they did succeed in getting more people in the door through drinks, they would lose the touch they had with their customers. More customers would just mean that they cannot have the personal connections they previously had with Starbucks. Schultz argued that all over Milan, baristas knew who their customers were and maintained a healthy acquaintance with them. But, but Baldwin would not give in. He told Schultz that maybe two more small counters could be added, but that was that. Howard Schultz had not made it that far in life by playing it safe. He knew deep within that if he did not act upon this idea, he would regret it for a long time. It was time to act and not to compromise. The founders of Starbucks were too held up trying to integrate Starbucks and Pete's Coffee, which had very different organizational cultures. They were never going to have his level of passion for his idea. After a lot of thought, Schultz approached Baldwin again. But this time, he had a different proposition. Howard Schultz wanted to quit. He wanted to go out and try his concept as an entrepreneur in his own right. Now, thankfully, Schultz was in good company. Baldwin and Boker not only accepted his resignation, they allowed him to stay on and use his Starbucks office till he got started with his new project. Boker even offered to work as a consultant part-time till the new business got off the ground. When plans were drawn for the company to be and the question of funding arose, Baldwin agreed to invest $150,000 of Starbucks money into Schultz's enterprise. It was a huge show of support and came as a surprise to even Schultz. It set his heart racing and mind focused. This was doable. It, however, would not go as well as it started. The first external investor did come to Schultz easily. The husband of a friend of Schultz's wife decided to invest. Ron Margolis was a doctor. He invested in promising startups. When Schultz presented the idea to him and wanted to show the financial projections, Margolis was clear. He did not want to see them and clearly stated that he would not understand them anyways. He just wanted to know if $100,000 would be sufficient because he believed in Howard Schultz. Though $100,000 was not the whole amount that Schultz needed, 
This was a huge vote of confidence that thrust him forward. But the rest of the funding would shake Schulz's life up. From having a nice job in New York to moving to work for a little lone coffee chain, he was now back again on the streets, like the time he was selling Xerox word processors. He went from one entity to another looking for funding. Some investors were outright mean to Schultz and reminded him of the rude customers from the time Schultz worked as a waiter when he was young. It would be a struggle to put the money together. But Schultz believed in his idea and slowly the money came. And now it was time to get to work. Il Giornale The name was suggested by Gordon Boker of Starbucks who was a part-time consultant at the start. Il Giornale was the name of a newspaper in Italy. But it also had the additional connotation of meaning daily. So it could as easily mean daily coffee as it meant a daily newspaper. Schultz loved the name and went ahead with it. Il Giornale. Speed was of the essence in an operation like this and Schultz chose the head of Mercury the fast messenger god as the company's logo. A green circle was drawn around the head and the words Il Giornale were written. It was a new beginning. Due to the funding secured, Schultz could open the very first Il Giornale in the Columbia Center, the tallest building in Seattle. From the start, Schultz made sure the employees were trained well. He had noticed that at Starbucks, Though the quality of product was great, the service was not optimal at times. The employees, due to the speciality of the coffees and the knowledge they possessed about it, sometimes had a holier-than-thou attitude towards the customers. By training, Schultz had made it better at Starbucks and wanted to emulate the same at El Giornale. Schultz also researched a lot of espresso bars in Italy before starting the first location. Boca accompanied him on that trip as they scoured hundreds of Italian espresso bars for inspiration. The Il Giornale location was a smash hit. Emboldened by the success, Schultz went ahead with plans for further locations. Schultz put together an able crew and worked his way up in the Seattle scene. He soon had three stores and all of them were successful. They were making sales of $500,000 each. During this stage of Il Giornale's growth, quite early on, Schultz heard a piece of news. A piece of news that would change the course of American coffee. Baldwin and Boker only wanted to keep Peeps coffee as their main brand. They did not want to keep their stores in Seattle. And as a result, the stores in Seattle, the roastery, and the name Starbucks were up for sale. Starbucks for sale. The story of how Il Giornale became the second iteration of Starbucks and became the cultural phenomenon it is, drops next week. 
Talking of Giants is a podcast hosted by Vikhyat Mutyala. The theme soundtrack was composed by Bertie Ashley. You can reach me Vikhyat Mutyala at talkingofgiants@gmail.com. That is talkingofgiants@gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the show.